the way that we want to promote people thinking about emotional sobriety is to think of it as not a thing, but as a process. Bill Wilson, co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, wrote in 1952, if we examine every disturbance we have, great or small, we will find at the root some unhealthy dependence and its consequent demand. Wilson suggested that if we could identify and continually surrender these unrealistic and unrealizable demands, that we may then be able to accomplish what he imagined to be the recovery's next frontier, something he called emotional sobriety. Flash forward 70 years and join psychotherapists and best-selling authors Tom Rutledge and Dr. Alan Berger, who have taken up the mantle of exploring Bill Wilson's new frontier. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety, the podcast. I'm Tom Rutledge, uh, and with me is Dr. Alan Berger. Winter is coming. That's all I can say. Well, I feel like I'm in the Game of Thrones right now. Winter is coming. Well, it's a little different from L.A., isn't it? You do look like you could be a member of the Brotherhood Without Banners. Mm -hmm. I can see it. Just got in from uh, a long trip, cross-country drive uh, with my aunt and her dogs from Maine to Houston. And then I just got in from the airport and my car battery's dead. A lot of emotional sobriety is going to come into play this evening as I untangle all the uh, knots and just stupid logistical life stuff. You guys know yeah. all about it. I really love how we brought curiosity into the discussion of this. Yeah. But I think that the other the other concept that is so relevant is flexibility. God is yeah. being able to be flexible in dealing with whatever is going on for us. I mean, it is so critical because you cannot, I believe you cannot have emotional sobriety if you're rigid. You know, if things have to be a certain way and you get upset about it, and it, yeah, that's not emotional sobriety. That's a dry drunk, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's how we define it. And the flexibility here to be able to be able to bend and roll with the punches and bend with the circumstances, mm -hmm. I mean, becomes such a critical piece. And it's really relevant to our discussion of forgiveness tonight, isn't it? I, yes. And I love and I just, you know, I just and, and before we go to forgiveness, I just want to say something about short nutshell kind of definitions for emotional sobriety, you know, because there are many ways to do it. I mean, you, you know, basically being a grown up, <laughs> that's one, you know, it being, being, you know, um, uh, being self-respecting and respecting of others. But flexibility <laughs> is you're absolutely right. Without that, it is there is not any yes. emotional sobriety. It's Sorry, like it, it, that's totally yeah. well, it's totally connected to expectations. And and the truth is, flex to be a flexible person. What we do is we have a realistic expectation that things are not going to go the way we plan. Yeah. You know, it's like Patrick doesn't doesn't have the, the plan in mind that he's going to have a dead car battery when he gets gets home no. from the airport. But but if he's doing well, he, he does understand that things aren't necessarily going to go the way he wants them to go. So when, the, when you know the you know and and you know response time you know a lot of times I you know I give myself those the, the little grace period where I get to cuss and scream and holler for a couple of minutes and and then try to get get my my bearings and come back but you know you can do it over and over and over again to where you can actually get to the place where and I don't and I'm not setting this up as an expectation but where where something can go off and you can just go huh how about that. 
And then yeah. you just move right. on. And some days, you, some days you can do that. It's really nice. Some days you can. Some days we're more flexible than others. I mean, I I feel that physically and emotionally. I was going to say, <laughs> as, as as two old guys here, I'm going like I know that exactly. It's like what's what makes the difference in how I get out of bed in the morning. Ah, you know. That's exactly true. Man. It's so true. You mentioned, Alan, that uh, understanding forgiveness needs to take place kind of late in the emotional sobriety project. The way that we want to promote people thinking about emotional sobriety is to think of it as not a thing, but as a process. It's a mistake to think of it as some that a thing that you have because you don't have it. You're always engaged in it. It's an ongoing process in terms of how we are dealing with what's happening to us, how we are dealing with our emotions, how we are dealing with conflicts in our relationships, how we're dealing with disappointments or unexpected emergencies, et cetera, et cetera. So if we think of it as a process, not as a thing, then one way of looking at the process of emotional sobriety is to think about our relationship with our different emotions. Yes. And one of the emotions that come up for all of us is if we're betrayed or hurt in some way, or we got a, uh, you know, what we feel is a legitimate grievance with another individual for whatever, whatever the transgression, mm -hmm. you know, is that that occurred in that relationship. And, you know, and now we're talking about, well, look, how do I deal with that? How do I deal with this emotion that I'm carrying around? You know, one of the things we talk about is when we define resentment, it's actually re-experiencing the same feeling over and over again. In fact, one of the things that this guy, Dr. Fred Lushkin, discovered when he was doing research on forgiveness, because he was brilliant. You know, he, he's one of these psychologists that really approached it, I thought, in very in, in, in to me, what's the best approach from, from a psychological perspective? He said, before we understand forgiveness, let us understand what creates a grievance, what creates an injury. And one of the things he says that happens is there's some kind of a violation of our rule, an unenforceable rule we have. Mm -hmm. So that takes place. Then the second thing he says is we take that very personally. They did it to us. And if they cared about us, they wouldn't have done it to us or they shouldn't have done it to us. The third thing is, is we tell the story. We, hold, we have a, a narrative that keeps us a victim. And every time we tell the narrative, we re-traumatize ourselves. Right. So it's those about, are the it's about what happened to me. What happened yeah, to me? It's <laughs> about what happened to me. And then when I tell it again, I'm feeling that trauma. Mm -hmm. I mean, so so it's he, it was such a great research project because he says we've got to know what this process looks like if we're going to apply a new process and turn it around. And that's what he did. He said, first of all, we have to look at our unenforceable rules. Secondly, we need to understand that it wasn't personal in terms of what happened. It says more about the person than about us. And the third thing is we need to come up with a new narrative, a narrative that doesn't have us as a victim, but as the survivor or as the hero mm -hmm. or heroine. So that's what his formula was. And I'll tell you, man, you know, as you can see, one of the things we've talked about is these unenforceable rules and expectations. In fact, I think he's a guy that I saw that key 
use that phrase, unenforceable rules. My mentor, Dr. Kempler, used rules before, but he talked about rules more in terms of what was diminishing versus what rules are enhancing. But it's the same idea. And an unenforceable rule in the way we're talking about is not a rule that helps us connect with people. It's a rule that makes connection a challenge or difficult or problematic. If I start to get into my mind that, first of all, if what do we say? Humility is is a low focus on self, which means what business do I have generating all these rules for everybody else to live up to? Number one, that's why humility is so important in this process of emotional sobriety. Number two, what we've talked about, if I can see that now I can become aware of my unenforceable rules, I can do what Bill suggested is surrender these hobbling expectations, Mm -hmm. which is a very important part. Well, if I surrender them, I also have to now stop taking what that other person did personally. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm going to a uh, um, continuing education conference right now. It's one of my favorites to go to. It's called the Evolution of Psychotherapy. And uh, it's with the group of uh, Jeffrey Zeig is the architect of it. It's, it's sponsored by the Milton Erickson Foundation in Arizona. And um, they put together a great, great group of some psychotherapists that really are doing some great work. And one of my favorite people that shows up at this is a is a is a, a female therapist. Her name is Dr. Ellen Bader, and her and her husband, I believe it's Richard Peterson, they have the Couples Institute up in Menlo, California, and um, they're known for a lot of their work with infidelity. And in terms of helping people deal with that kind of betrayal. And it's really wonderful to watch what she does because a big, a big part of her intervention is helping the person who's been betrayed by someone is to not take what that person did personally. They didn't have that affair to them. They just had that affair. And she spends a lot of time helping people to differentiate themselves and not fuse themselves with the other person's behavior. And, and I, I, I just love her work. And, and it just brings home, you know, when we start looking at this, at this process of emotional sobriety, we see the value of it from all of these different points of view. It's an essential part of psychotherapy for a lot of people that approach therapy from this perspective of differentiation. It's an essential part of people finding a a whole new, as we see on Thursday nights, how many people have discovered new possibilities in their recovery. It's incredible the feedback we're getting on the Thursday Mm -hmm. night meeting. You know, people saying this is exactly what they needed that they couldn't find in the rooms, Mm -hmm. which is so exciting. So this is cool stuff, man. This is really great stuff. But well, we get- what you're talking about, the 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 the, the therapist, uh, what is her name? Dr. Ellen Bader. Bader but Dr. Bader's doing is, I mean, like like what any of us are doing with with differentiation, which is which is you, you can't solve a problem until you get your it's about perspective. It's yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm doing a very simple little metaphor in my head, a comparison of stuff, because I was I was I was I was. I was 
I was working on a little gadget that, that I was trying to fix er, earlier today. And it's, it's like, and it was, it, and it was just all about perspective. It's like, I, I have to look at this from different, I was in literal sense, I was looking at it from different angles. What a challenge that is. And what a, you know, you have to be very, very creative about being able to get to the place where there's, you have a perspective where you can see it in a way that there are possibilities. That's one of the places where it doesn't feel like there are any. What would be the the way you would articulate the benefit of forgiving a spouse that has been unfaithful? How do you sell that to somebody who's just resolute on, okay, I, sh- I should forgive this person? Who are you working for? Kind of thing. Well, yeah, first of all, I, I don't ever try to sell it to anybody. Right. That's what actually, um, I was going to say. Don't, you know, we're not, because the moment, the moment you try to sell it, it's like you got, resi- you, 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 you're asking for somebody to resist you. Yeah. You offer. Yeah. And I don't even turn it into a should. I mean, I I offer it as a possibility that somebody could look at this situation and come to deal with their partner um, and learn more about their partner from this thing so that they can have a better relationship. But I don't ever I don't ever advocate staying if that's not what you want to do. If you know now what turns or, or out forgiving, if you don't want to forgive, I mean, one that's of the right, things that's right. I mean, one of the things I've said to people, if the first step of forgiveness is to give yourself permission to not forgive, because otherwise it's not a choice. And it, 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 I'm sorry, I interrupted you there, Alan, but it's just like that. To well, me, no, that's no, just go ahead. so I think important. That's right on. This is what, what, what Patrick just said is, is so important because we want to put the this in the right context. There's no should to Patrick is we get rid of the shoulds. Emotional mm-hmm. sobriety, one in the process of emotional sobriety, there's no soil that grows any shoulds. It's a should-free garden. <laughs> we have no shoulds. I like that. Should. Should-free garden. There's nothing, no shoulds grow in it because shoulds, shoulds really work against emotional sobriety. See, because they dictate that we need to be doing something that's dictated outside of ourselves. I mean, the other thought I had, you know, it's funny. I used to talk about a locus of control all the time. And I never applied it to emotional sobriety until a couple of days ago. And I was starting to think about what we're really advocating is that people keep their locus of control within themselves. Yep. And right. And so one way of keeping that locus of control in yourself is to is to not take what somebody else is doing personally. Because as soon as you take it personally, then you're making it about you. It's you're acting as though what they did is about you. And it's not about you. It's about them. Even if they were doing it at you, even if it was an act of anger, which sometimes it is, that I went out and had, you know, I did this to get back at you. That has nothing to do with you. That's how they got back at you. You see, that's that's the thing. So I don't advocate if you don't want to do this stuff and you're done with the relationship, then just be done. You know, as as my my dear friend Zoe says, he's, you know, just stick to dismount, <laughs> you know, go ahead and get out and stick to dismount, you know, learn how to get out and get out in a clean way if that's what you're done. But if you are so inclined, if you see that, look, this is an opportunity for me to grow myself and for me to to experience my humility because it, it starts from the thing those among us who who haven't create who haven't had a problem or have been off can throw the first stone and nobody can mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, that's the way I kind of think about it is, is that how can I judge somebody else in terms of what they've done when I've had my own issues that I've struggled with in my life and I've made my own mistakes? Right. Well, and I also, also want to toss in here, too, that, that not taking something personally doesn't mean not taking it seriously. It's like, see, I think a lot of times it's, it's people we need to stop and, and, and remind people that what we're talking about is, is we're not talking about not taking something personally doesn't mean I, I don't care about anything it's, it's like because i think it's easy to say you know because because i think we because most of us have a history of of saying we're not taking something personally almost well not almost but as a defense you know yes. i you know so you piss me off alan and i go like like well, i'm not gonna take i'm just not taking that personally it's like what i'm really doing is i'm pissed, i'm mad as hell at you and I, you know and and that's how i'm saying it you know is is really my resentment but it's it's yeah. like no it's it's and and i you know when we're talking about infidelity i mean definitely there's no way of re of repairing or, or healing something in there without it without everybody taking it completely seriously. But the idea of that, but I love the idea that you bring back the locus of control because the idea is that that that's what that's what that is about. It's like it's yeah. it, it just comes back to this thing that is you know, and it's and it's my favorite thing about twelve steps because it's been there. It's been there the whole time. I it was there long before I got there, and when and it's been there. And that is the place is that you know always start. You know, all you solve and to solve anything to to change anything, you always start with yourself. It's yeah, like it right. doesn't mean other people aren't involved. It doesn't mean other people aren't going to be required to, if we're going to solve it to change. But it, what yeah. it does mean is there's only one starting place, and that's the locus of control that you're talking about, Alan. It's right. like it, we can, I can only start with me. You can only start with you. Right. That's right. And see, that's 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 kind of the orientation. See, one of the things that I see that comes up that makes this a challenge to deal with it is that it really triggers a lot of personal insecurity. If my partner had an affair, then I start to go, well, it's because I wasn't enough. You know, I wasn't handsome enough. I'm not clever enough. I'm not, you know, go ahead and fill in the blank, right? I'm not sexy enough. I don't satisfy them sexually. They needed somebody else. Mm -hmm. I take their affair as a reflection of my deficit. And see, that becomes a serious problem because now I'm upset at them because of what I'm feeling that I'm making myself feel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they didn't do that. They just did what they did. The fact that I that it's triggering all of these different reactions I'm having, those are my feelings. Those are issues that I need to look at and work on. You see, so that's what we say is that when these emotions surface, if I'm flexible in how I deal with them, as Tom is saying, mm -hmm. I might initially be angry. How could you do that this to me? But then I start to see, wait a minute, they're not doing anything to me. This is what I'm doing to me. I'm taking it this way and it's bringing up these issues. Now I got a chance to get to raise my self-esteem. I got a chance to deal with things in a different way because part of self-esteem comes from learning how to cope with life on life's terms. You know, Dr. Nathaniel Brandon saw that, that our, our what he called our personal efficacy, our sense that I can handle whatever issues life is throwing at me, he saw as, as a very important component of self-esteem, just like he also saw worthiness 
you know, of love and success. So it was two things. It was self-efficacy and worthy self-worth is the, are the two components that he believed made up self-esteem. So in any of these situations, look how I deal with it, self-efficacy, how I feel about it, self-worth, right? Mm -hmm. So when I'm confronting a situation like this, whether it's an affair, whether somebody else has betrayed me, whether I feel like somebody's ripped me off or whatever the situation is, there's an opportunity for me to use this painful experience, this disturbing experience, take it serious, as Tom is saying, but take it serious in terms of what do I need to do to handle this thing? What do I need to do to cope with this thing instead of getting into the, you shouldn't have done this to me. So when you talk about seeing the, you know, the deficits, all that, that's because these saboteurs in our heads, these little intrapersonal saboteurs, uh, you know, the should, my should monster, your anger monster, that, that um, they're opportunists. And so basically, so if, 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 if my wife has an affair, then basically what the first thing, I, the, what I'm really hearing from, first of all, is that should monster who comes in and is saying, yeah, well, of course, because, and then starts listing out all of my deficits. And it's like, right. so there's going to be things that in, in, in the relationship between the two of us that we're going to have to work out interpersonally, but yeah. it's like, I am not in, in a position to do that until I address what is happening to me intrapersonally first. Yeah. And it sounds like that's what, that's what the, the, psycho, uh, the psychotherapist you're describing does with the person is, is, is slow, slow the process down, take the component parts of, you know, I sometimes will tell couples uh, that I, if I look, I'll work with them individually. Some, because I say it's like taking component parts out of an engine and working on them by themselves before we put them back in. And it's like, we have to do those things in a certain order. Yes. So it's the ultimate expression. Well, well, for very well said, Tom. Very well mm -hmm. said. Yeah, Thanks. both of you. And um, un unenforceable rules and unreasonable expectations. For forgiveness mm -hmm. represents kind of one of the... It's one of the more potent examples, right? Well, that's yeah. Why, yeah. Well, I'm reading uh, from Alan's book. It's, I love this part. Uh, it's, it's one of the little, little blocked parts that uh, forgiving those who have hurt or betrayed us is the key to addressing our unfinished business with them. We forgive these people so we may, and this is the key, we forgive these people so that we may release them from our expectations. See, yeah. I mean, I love that line. It's like, because it, it surprises we do this for us, not for them. It's like, and it's like, and that doesn't mean they may, they may not in fact benefit, but it's like, again, we do, this is that place, you know, I always use my wife's term that I've heard her use with clients before, uh, positive selfishness. You know, this is something where, where you, positive selfishness is, is self, self-focus, self-care that not only doesn't harm other people, it actually helps others because you're a, you're a better person to be in a relationship with because you're taking such good care of yourself. And releasing other people from our expectations, to me, that is the key to that. I mean, that's my favorite part of that whole chapter. Well, and that's what it is. It is a releasing. And see, and, and just to think of, of energy for a minute, I, I'm holding on to something. It's taking a lot of energy to hold on to it. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things we see with this stuff is it ties up energy that I can be using 
to live my life, right? To engage in the things that I want to engage in rather than holding on to a situation that is, that is very, very painful and that is um, disturbing and, and traumatizes me every time I think about it, mm-hmm. right? So as when I release, I'm also experiencing freedom. And you've heard Tom and I and Roger and talk about freedom is synonymous with emotional sobriety. The process that we're involved is, is to have freedom from all of the shackles of these kinds of ideas that hook us in and keep us connected to things that aren't good for us, that are not healthy for us, that are toxic, that are diminishing. And that's the, that's the exciting thing about this. That this is this concept that we're really getting into in this process of emotional sobriety. It's so exciting because there's so many possibilities with mm-hmm. it. I really love that you brought up the idea of, of 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 energy here because at any given moment in time, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm I'm a I'm a fan of simplistic simplistic ideas for, as a way of understanding things. I uh, understand the application becomes complex, but but in the simple simplest form, at any given moment, we have 100 percent of our energy, whatever that is, whether that's, that's from within us, uh, God's yeah. allowance, whatever, whatever we have at any given moment. And, you know, and I've always had a pet peeve about athletes who say they're going to give 110% because that <laughs> blows the whole damn metaphor. It's like, I'm sorry, you can't, you, you know, you can't do that. It's like that because the cool part about th- thinking about a hundred percent is now I have to make choices. This is, this is about responsibility. Now I have to make choices. And what you're saying is it's so important. And I really like to challenge myself and challenge other people to realize that if I'm, if I'm spending, you know, if I'm spending time uh, and I realize, and sometimes it just happens automatically and I'll look back and I'll realize I come from, you know, a long history of fretting and worrying. So I can, it's a baseline I can drop back to very easily. And it's like, it's like, and when I, when I feel myself there, what I realize is there's a, you know, there's a, a tremendous amount of my energy that is being used to do that. And it's, and it's producing absolutely nothing. I mean, it's like, uh, I heard, uh, I think it was Ryan holiday that described, described it as, uh, uh suffering in advance was anxiety. Ah. It's like, I, I like love that, that, yeah. that idea yeah, of suffering great. in advance. It's like, he may be quoting right. somebody else, but that's, that's where I learned it. It's like, like, yeah. um, yeah, but it's, it's, uh, and I realized though, that at that point, so what you're talking about is when we're dealing with a resentment and it's like, man, I have, a, I have, a, you know, I have plenty of history of, of dealing with that stuff and stories about that is those things are like you say they're, they're repetitive there's they're circular and and basically so we can imagine you know just if we just imagine that okay what if 35% of my energy on a day-to-day basis is being spent in this building this resentment and maintaining this resentment right. you know it's really important for us to think of it in terms of that's 35% of my energy i oh, don't I have you know i don't have it that's right it's like what you know i get to choose that's a little bit why it gets weird when people start to get better with this stuff is yeah. that people don't know what to do because we're so, you know, because, you know, we, we do, you know, we've talked about that before. We do, in fact, uh, as human beings, uh, for whatever reason, whatever silly reason, we, we tend to uh, associate familiar with safe. 
you know, and so when when we when we when we in the things we're seeking to change in this process are not are going to take us to places that are not familiar. It's yeah. going to, you know, I always say it's going to most of the people will describe them as weird. You know, I, had, I used to have a T-shirt that I would sell. It's called weird. It just said weird is good because of that, because it's like you're getting into a new place that's unfamiliar to you. And it's like it's going to be uncomfortable. But it's that's the freed up energy when you talk about what happens when what what do you do when you release somebody from your expectations? What do you do when you forgive somebody? I have more energy. See, some people, their whole life is filled with this negativity. So when you start taking it away, they're literally lost. Yeah. Oh, I grew up in that family. But I mean, I, yeah. It's like if, if, if negativity were an Olympic event, we would be all gold medalists and we wouldn't think it was a good thing. People who really have gone through this process talk about these places where, and, and it goes to some of you talk about a lot, Alan, and that's you're your, keeping your balance which I think is what emotional sobriety is too about balance. And it's like, you know, you lose your center of gravity. It's like you, you know, and, and, and when you get into something that is unfamiliar to you, it is really, it is, it is frightening. And yeah. it, it could even be painful. It's like, I don't, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know what to do. And so one of the things I want anybody listening to this, that, that can identify with moving themselves, because I've got a client right now who's going through, through some of that, where it's like, she's doing beautifully. She's just, she's fighting back with her eating disorder, you know, just really well. And of course, what does that, what does that mean? It means yeah. the eating disorder gets louder. It means the eating disorder gets meaner. It means everything gets harder. And it's like, and, and of course, every everything that she, you know, so she's feeling that. And what I'm help, trying to help her see, and it's a tough one to, I mean, I, 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 I always tell her, I, I know I have the easy part, but, you know, the point is, you know, if, 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 if you're feeling that backlash inside of you, if this is really that uncomfortable, it's probably because you're doing the right thing. I relate pretty hard to all that. Yeah, it's it's oh, it's a big it's I'm glad we're bringing it up and maybe we could talk about it some more, too, because because I think that that and I appreciate you saying that you relate to it because because it's that's the place where any kind of relapse process and I'm not talking about just necessarily even behavioral relapse, but any kind of lapsing back into old ways of thinking really takes advantage of that when we get into that place that's that you know that i you know that place i i very often will call divine emptiness the place where you you know you know more about who you're not than who you are you, yeah. you know, you, you, you know more about, you know, what you, what you don't, what you don't want to do than what you do want to do. It's a blank spot, man. It's, and, and, and it's, it's scary. And it's yeah. like, and, and so those, those, those saboteurs can really come in and take advantage at that time. Those times are the times where you really need to be connected to support. That's very well said. And I, I do think I want to come back to this. I know that our next show, we're going to have a guest on, right, Patrick, mm -hmm. who's coming on our next show? In our next show, we have Brian Cuban, uh, who is a um, uh, recovery author. He has a new book out, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, his journey and uh, his uh, particular insights into what we're doing here with emotional sobriety. Cool. Yeah, great. And then what we'll do is let's we'll circle back to this issue of forgiveness because we want to get into the how of it, the nuts and bolts of how mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. We'll share some anecdotes from our own. I'll share some from my mm -hmm. life. Happy to. And some of the stuff that mm -hmm. I've worked with with people and mm -hmm. and and um, to just help you figure a way to set yourself free from this stuff. 
you know, because when you when you release someone through forgiveness, then what you're really doing is to me, you're getting connected to something very, very important with yourself. And we'll talk more about that. I can tell you the person I most need to forgive is myself. That's tied to this whole thing. See, because if I have, if I haven't come to grips with some of my issues, then it's so easy to project them on others. Like they should be better than, you know, than that as though I'm righteous and somehow I don't have this problem. And there is a big dynamic. One of the things that keeps people stuck, you know, and keeps forgiveness from not happening is this projection that takes place. Yes. You know, if I and, take all the parts of me that 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 aren't working well and I give them to you, right. you know, I'm going to see yeah. you as a real idiot. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, and, and and by the way, Patrick, you're in good company with these two old guys that you got here, because after I wrote the self-forgiveness handbook, I went back to my college. This was back in the 1900s. And it was like like I went back to my college to do a lecture on on uh, on the book on, on self-forgiveness. And I was an English major back in those days. I, you know, I did I kind of, I was kind of dabbled with psychology as well, but mostly an English major. And my psychology professor was not, was not there. But I, so I asked my, my, my mentor and English professor, you know, about Dr. Starr, uh, you know, did he know I was coming? And, and, and he said, Oh yeah, he knew you were coming. I told him the name of your book. And he said, well, you know, I know Rutledge had a lot to forgive himself for. <laughs> i'm in good company indeed and uh, we will see our uh, loving audience next week tinge your life tinge your myth cultivate your narrative with whomever you're with then with glass in hand and children on one knee bring some stories bring your stories back to me It ain't a crime to be a human Never be ashamed to be yourself Rest assured that whatever you're doing Will entertain me like nobody else So here's to us, my old friends Until it's time to drink the wine and break the bread again With glass in hand and children Bring some stories, bring your stories back to me.